Anyway, let's begin with prayer. Father God, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you love us so deeply and wonderfully. Teach us your word here today, Lord. Guide us and teach us. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit. Bring healing, Lord, to those who are hurting. Lord, take away fear for those who are filled with fear. Give security to those who are filled with uncertainty. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our walk with you. Guide us with your spirit. Teach us your word. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a black hole is a large sun or star that has collapsed on itself, which causes a very strong gravitational force. That bend, that this force is so strong that it bends light so that if you know, light were to come by, it would bend it and, and force it into the black hole. There's so much gravity that nothing near the black hole can escape. If there was a sun or a star near the black hole, it would be very difficult to see it because all the light would be swallowed up into it. There is no way that you can escape uh, into a black, from a black hole. If you were sucked into the black hole, you would be stretched to a singularity so thin that all your atoms would be stretched out. Of course, that would kill you. It would be so uh, singularity. Life cannot exist in a black hole. Now, scientists believe that every center of a galaxy is a black hole, which causes the galaxies to spin. Now, the power of the black hole proves immense power. There's immense power in our universe, and there are powers in the universe that we cannot understand. If we were to look just at the size of our galaxy, the Milky Way, it's 100,000 light years in diameter. So if you were to get on your space rocket and travel to the edge of the, you know, uh, 50,000 light years from the center to the edge of the black to the edge of the Milky Way, it would take 50,000 light years to get there, okay? And last time I checked, I don't live 50,000 light years, (laughs) you know? Another galaxy called the Andromeda Galaxy is 6 million light years across, and it has 100 trillion stars. Our galaxy at most has 400 billion stars, so just the immensity of just that one galaxy. Now, scientists say that the size of the universe, what can be measured is 93 billion light years, and that is the diameter, just the universe of what we know. Uh, The idea is that the universe is just this massive sphere, if you will. But the question is, what exists if anything outside of the universe? What is outside the boundaries of the universe, you know? From a scientist's point of view, we will never know, not with the technology we have. We can barely surmise that the universe is this big. It could be bigger. When you look at how large and the immense size of the universe, you see how, how infinitesimally small we are. But what about the depth and how small things are? If you go to the cell and then you go to the atom, to, to the depth of the atom, how far down can you travel into the depth of the atom? How many light years will it take you deeper into that? We cannot even measure that. What is beyond the atom is the same question as what is beyond the universe. We don't have the technology. And I don't believe we have the math to answer that question. You look at the vastness of the universe and the size of our solar system, you begin to recognize the precision of how everything is made. The planets are placed at the right distance from the sun, and the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies, everyone, everything is placed in the right place. Even the size of the universe is precisely what it needs to be. And you see, as you get into the depth of the atom, the tiny, tiny part, and you marvel at the precision of the atom, and it's exactly what it needs to be and spaced in the exact measurements of how it needs to be. 
And when you look at the science of the universe, the earth, the human body, life itself, and whether you call it biology, chemistry, astronomy, physics, there's one scientist that we cannot deny, the one who created all of it. Who, out, who, who, uh, who put everything where it needs to be in precision and perfection is the Lord God. He did this. You know, I'm reminded of Psalm 8 where it says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than God and you crowned him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He took great care to create every star, planet, atom, and galaxy. He took even greater care when he formed the fish, the birds, and the animals. And he took the greatest care when he created you and me. God's love is proven in how carefully and meticulously he created you. He created you to know him and to see his handiwork in all of his creation, all that he's done. In the book of Isaiah, we read, Thus says that God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who, live, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The verse, this verse declares that how God created the universe and the earth and, and how he put life on this planet. In Isaiah again, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. In the book of Job we read, In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Our God is the creator, and he is the Lord of all creation. There is no other God. There is no other means by which all this came to be. There is no other way that life can exist. There is only one way, and that is God doing it and God creating That is why we exalt him, we love him, we worship him and praise him, for he is the reason we can live and why we do live. God alone is God and he alone is the creator. We behold him and we exalt him. We have today what is called scientism, which is the opinion that science and the scientific method are the best and only way to render truth about the world and reality. Scientism is really an idol where science has replaced God. But to be true scientist, you would trust and love God, for he is the ultimate scientist in creating all that we see and know. There is no science without God. You want to trust men and women who are infallible in their search for truth to get to the truth? Or do you want to trust the one who created the heavens and the earth who is truth to show you what is truth? I trust and without equivocation or reservation believe God who is the creator of heaven and earth. I trust the one who loved me enough to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth to die on the cross and rise again to save me from my sins. I trust the God who sent his Holy Spirit to fill his church and compel his people to love, to serve, and proclaim the beautiful gospel message. I trust the one who said, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am you may be also. I trust God, for he has more than proven that he is trustworthy. I trust him to overcome the battles I face, the difficulties I endure, and the temptations I encounter. I trust him 
when I face conflict to bring reconciliation. I trust him when I walk through the valley of shadow of death, for I will fear no evil, for he is with me. I trust God. So I call on you today. Trust God. Trust him. He is faithful. In the letter to the Romans, Paul demonstrated and proved God's faithfulness. He has proven God is trustworthy. He has proven we, humanity, who are sinful, are not faithful and trustworthy. We were captured, we are captured and imprisoned by sin. And oh boy, do we need Christ. Paul had been preaching the gospel message and planting churches throughout the Roman world. The gospel message is fulfilled and fully revealed in Christ. If you read the Old Testament, the gospel is there, but it's hidden and known. But the gospel's revelation is fully seen in Christ. When the gospel is revealed in Christ, then the Old Testament message, you can finally see Christ there. When you see Christ, you see God's heart, you hear his word. In the Old Testament, we see the condition of humanity spelled out. In verse chapter 13 of Isaiah, it says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. In Isaiah again, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed the laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. This is what we deserve. We deserve this. But we see the condition and what the earth deserves in those verses. But when you read the prophecy of Isaiah 24, you realize God took all of his wrath, all of his anger that we deserved, that, was, that he was supposed to pour out on us, and instead he put it on Christ. All of that wrath, all that anger, he put it and poured it out on Christ and took all that we deserved. And Christ received what was ours. So God didn't punish the earth as justice demanded, but rather he punished our Lord Jesus Christ and he received all that. And he endured this wrath and he died. And three days later, he arose. Paul, as he's preaching the gospel, revealed to the world and for all to hear God's solution, he wanted people to know that. How's how much God loves you. He wanted the world to know there is a more excellent way. And what we deserve, God through Christ has saved us and has shown us his grace instead. I trust God and I tell you, trust him too. Number one, you are in a battle, you cannot win. Let's take a look at chapter 7 of Romans, start with verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. You know, it, it, some people say, well, if I could just, I'm, I'm good enough. I just have to be good to be accepted by God. If it took God to send Christ to save you from your sins, what could I do to remove even a gram of sin in my life? An ounce, a little tiny atom of sin even. There's nothing I could do if it took Christ to do it. You know, you're in a battle, you cannot win, so trust God. Paul, as he's writing this letter, he wants his hearers to understand the battle and how impossible on themselves, on their own, it is to win. When you can go 
to win, where do you go to win this battle? What we find as we read these verses is that you cannot look within. You have to look up. Paul wrote that the law is good. It's spiritual. It's good. It's righteous. But he is flesh and sold into sin. That's what he says. For I, we know the, that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold into the bondage of sin. His flesh cannot do spiritual things. It cannot overcome because the flesh confines it, confines him. It will not, he, you know, the flesh itself himself will not look beyond self, but only deeper into self for help. The law is spiritual, meaning it comes from God, but Paul is unspiritual. He's made of flesh. He's unable to go to the next level that God originally created him to live. He is, is in fact, sold into bondage, as he says there in verse 14, sold into bondage to sin. He is not his own man. He's enslaved. He is held captive and unable to escape. And, in fact, there are no ways to escape. This held captive unto sin creates a lifestyle. Paul saw his dilemma. There is a law, but all he can do is wish to fulfill it, but he can't do it. He begins instead to live a life that is contrary to the law, is contrary to righteousness. He cannot in any way live up to that standard. And what we find, if we're honest with ourselves, is we'll say, I can't either. All you're left with is despair if that's all you have. If that's all you have, then yes, that's all you're left with is despair. You are in a battle and you have no weaponry to even fight this battle. You're lost, but God will find you. And trust God to find you, to save you, to guide you. Number one, the battle begins in the mind. When you read this chapter, there's an ongoing debate about is Paul talking about when he was unsaved in this chapter or is, or is when he was saved? So we got some views here. <laughs> I have to separate the room and say, okay, which, you know, is he saved or unsaved when he's writing this? And so there's, is he talking about himself before he found Christ or is this Paul's heart after he became a Christian? Now, we know in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said that when it came to following the law, he was blameless. Could you do that? Yes. When it comes to doing righteous thing, I got it down. We call that what? Arrogance. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Because you don't look within to say, I need help. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> you know. But this could mean how others perceived him. Now that Paul is saved, he's now telling the story when he sought to fulfill the law that he felt defeated and in despair because he could not quite do it, even though on the outside he looks successful. Or it can be the dilemma of a follower of Christ who feels they're living in defeat and despair because they haven't been discipled. They haven't taken the next class, right? <laughs> I look at this and I see the human condition, the doubts and the questions that we typically may think to ourselves. This is the human heart which is unable and powerless. We see the willingness but only but not the strength to do it. In Romans 5, Paul wrote, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Beautiful verse. While we were still helpless. While we were still helpless, unable, powerless. This is what Paul knew when he saw his sinful heart and he saw his helplessness. Here in chapter 7, he's telling us about his helplessness. He cannot do what he wants to do, but the very thing he hates to do. 
He keeps falling into sin, falling into selfish reactions, and becomes angry and frustrated. He falls deeper and deeper into self because the more you, you see what is right and you see yourself failing, guess what? You keep your eyes on yourself. When you have the law and say, that's my agenda, I'm going to fulfill the law, all you do is focus more and more on you. All you see is you. All you see is you. And you never see others. It's, anger, it's, it's the insidious nature of the self. Then we end up asking, how can God love me? How can he forgive me? Will he ever forgive me? When Paul was describing here is that his mind has already gone in a direction and he cannot change it. His heart is bent on sin. His mind is compelled to go. What does this sin do when it's unleashed? It does not bring about the righteousness of God. Uh, It does not receive the love of God. It doubts the love of God. It does not reveal the love of God. It's the same old story told thousands of times each day about pain, trauma, rejection, violence, fear that that you see people living out every day. What does this do, sin do? It creates a society, a lifestyle, war, death, greed. People become destitute. Genocide is common. Starvation happens. Immorality and tyranny are chosen and accepted. Yet we, what, we do not want to do this. This is wrong. There's something wrong with the world. But what is it? If we all look deep within and examine in our heart, we would see that sin. But most of us would say, nope, not me. It's the other person. But when you read verse 15, he says, For what I'm doing, I do not understand, for I'm practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. What does this produce? It produces shame and guilt. I know what's right, but I can't do it. That's shame. And that's guilt. And the enemy loves shame and guilt. He loves to remind you. Remember that time you had that thought? You did those things? You think God can forgive you? You know, uh, I always remember, if the enemy reminds you of, of your past, remind him of his future. <laughs> My Jesus saved me. You know what we do with shame? It's interesting. We guard it, put it in our heart, and build thick walls around and say, don't touch. We do. And then when people start to get close and you start to see that shame, hey, what's in there? Get away. And we react. And God says, can I have that? Can I take that away? We hide it. We bury it. The shame reminds us how helpless we are. We find no freedom from it. How can you overcome it? How can you defeat it? The answer is not inside. It's in him. Paul then says that when he realizes he does the opposite of what is good, then that leads to shame. But that shame proves there is something right beyond me. I cannot do it. Good does not reside in me. It's beyond me. But Paul wrote in verse 17, So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Sin is not is what I was not created to be. I was not created to be a sinner. God did not create me this way. I was not created and designed by God to live this way, to live helplessly, to live powerlessly, to live in unrighteous. We were not designed this way. There's something wrong, but what can I do to solve it, repair it? I can't trust myself. I can't trust the humanity to come up with something, but I can trust God. Number two, you're powerless to the threat of sin. 
Let's look at verse 18. Whoops, lost my lid. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In verse 7, 14 through 17, this sounds like Paul before Christ. He was struggling with the weight of his own sin, the ability to solve. He was a man who was acquainted with the law. He knew what the law said, but he knew it was good and righteous, but he also knew in his heart he really couldn't live up to it. Something was wrong. There was uncertainty in knowing. He had to rely on himself, and he was failing. He didn't have enough willpower, enough strength. In these verses, it sounds like a saved. But in these verses, verse 18, especially verse 18, it sounds like a saved person. This is what a saved person would say. Nothing good dwells in me. And this is the conclusion we must come to to understand who is God and his holiness, that he's holy. Nothing good in me. This is a statement we must understand and we must know about ourselves. We will never get to know the sanctification and holiness of God and that, he, that holiness he has for us until we come to God and say, nothing good in me, nothing good dwells in me. That's a lot of humility there. You've got to fall before God. Nothing good dwells in me. And when you come to this conclusion, there is great freedom. And relief, because the truth always puts you on the path to freedom. Now, be careful, because you can say, woe is me, nothing is good in me. And all you're doing is then you start focusing on yourself. Nothing good in me, woe is me. No, you say, nothing good is me, but there is a God who's good, and I can go to him, and he makes me good. Instead, we go to God. Number one, God welcomes you in humility. You must come to him in humility. Paul says the willing is, I like that. He says the willing is present, verse 18, but the doing of the good is not. <laughs> Jesus said that to his disciples when he was praying in the garden. They kept falling asleep and he wakes them up and he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the doing is weak. It's unable. We too must come to God in the depth of our inability and say, nothing good dwells in me. I am bankrupt. I'm empty. I have nothing to offer. And God knows this. He's not surprised by this. He welcomes you to come to him that way. He desires because then he says, let me pour out my love for you. David, when he sinned, cried out to God for forgiveness. And he wrote in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise In James we read, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God, therefore to God. Submit to God, therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God. Come to him humbly. When you come before God in honesty and truth, there's great freedom because then you will no longer try to get what you need through yourself. You will never look to yourself for the strength you need. You will look to the one who has the strength. Then you realize God is not out to punish you, but to save you. He desires to unleash his love upon you. The Bible says, 1 Thessalonians, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he desires for you, for all of us. 
to not be in the wrath of God, but to be saved. Come to the Father, and in all honesty and truth, say to him, nothing good dwells in me. He will comfort you, save you, forgive you, fill you with his spirit, walk with you. He will not reject you. He will not fight you. He will welcome you. For our help comes from him, not from us. We cannot look to ourselves or within ourselves to overcome, but instead we look to him who has overcome. We can trust God for he's able. He is trustworthy. Paul, in his argument, realized that the good he wanted to do, he could not do it. But through that realization, we, came, we come to this conclusion, it's the sin within me doing it. Now, this does not say, well, it's sin doing it within me, therefore it's not my responsibility, it's just the sin doing it within me. No, that's not, that's not what it means. You can't say, well, it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. It rather proves that you're resp- it is your responsibility, and we do deserve what we get if there was no salvation. But it also proves that we were not created to live like this. That we were created for something better, something right and good, something more. We were created to live righteously, to commune with God regularly, to know the Spirit intimately, to live with each other lovingly, to engage each other godly, to build a society in purity. There is a more excellent way. There is a life to be lived that is greater than we can imagine because there is a God who loves you and me. I trust God to build his church and build up his people to build you up. I trust God. Won't you trust him with me? Number three, you can overcome through Christ. Let's look at verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind and serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. You know, Paul in this chapter really wants you to know the law is righteous. He is not. Okay. The law is good. He is not. Because he's always being accused of saying, well, the, you're just saying the law is evil. He said, no, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm bad. That's good. <laughs> I just can't do it. Well, there's a famous 4th century church theologian named Augustine. He was the Bishop of Hippo, which was a place in North Africa, not the animal. And before he became a Christian, he was, well, he grew up, uh, he was a very intellectual, very smart man. He was very well versed in the philosophy of the age. Uh, He was drawn to the Eastern teaching called Manichaeism. This proved fruitless to him years later. He finally found Christ through the preaching of a preacher named Ambrose who lived in the the city of Milan. But he knew his heart struggled with sin and he could not overcome sin on his own. He was caught up in the trappings of the world. You know, even uh, before he became a Christian, uh, he he had taken a mistress and fathered a son. He is quoted as saying this in his confessions. He says this, but while speaking, he's referring to a preacher speaking, but while he was speaking, O Lord, you were turning around to look at myself, for I had placed myself behind my own back, refusing to see myself. 
You were setting me before my own eyes so that I could see how sordid I was, how deformed and squalid, how tainted with ulcers and sores. I saw it all and stood aghast, but there was no place where I could escape from myself. You brought me face to face with myself once more, forcing me upon my own sight so that I could see my wickedness and loathe it. I had known it all along, I, but I had always pretended that I was something different. I had turned a blind eye and forgotten. Augustine saw himself for who he was and all that he was. He was presented with something he did not want to see. Paul is doing the same here in this passage. He has seen how sordid he truly is. He has seen himself for who he is, and what is in him is not good. Number one, your mind must settle on the truth. The truth is God does love you deeply and intimately. God sent his son for you. God good does not dwell in you. And, but sin does. You are not made to live this way. You are made to live knowing God deeply, to love him truly and others willingly. Paul, but Paul wants to point out that, that deep within there's a knowledge of what is good and there is a desire to want to live in what is good. That he recognized in his heart of hearts the law is right, but it also proved he is not. Evil is present within him. There is a war and a battle waging and he is losing. He cannot win. The truth, God knows your struggles. He knows the battle you face. He knows the position you're in, but he wants you to be victorious and fulfilled. He wants you holy and justified. He wants you forgiven and adopted. He wants you called and serving. He wants you settle on the truth of who God is and who you are and who you can become because of who God is. Trust God for he will bring you to where you need to be. And number two, know the position from where you're fighting. As we, all, as we all should, we must cry out what Paul cried out. Who will set me free, this wretched man? Who can set me free? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There is nothing within that could set him free. So he looks up and he sees his help. In Psalm 121, it says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? Come, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When you find your victory, you find hope. You find your calling. You, through God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will bring change to the world that is so desperately unique. You can bring the love of God to this culture, to this environment, and you will bring change, real change, when you trust Him. The Bible says in Colossians, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Look, don't look in here. Look up there. Look to him. Keep your eyes on him. Paul recognized that it's Christ that was the only solution, the only help that that could save him from his body of sin was Christ Jesus. He was unable, but Christ is able. Because of Christ, he was victorious. So now, as followers of Christ, do we fight the battle to gain victory? No, instead we fight the battle from the position of victory. We fight the battle from the position of victory. Not to gain victory, not to keep victory, but from the position of victory. We have victory already in Christ. So our position is not from our so our position is from victory, not to gain victory. My victory in Christ is never in doubt. 
It never needs to be questioned. Do not waver. Celebrate your victory in Christ. Trust that you will overcome in him. Trust God. Will you trust him with me? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you that we can find all that we need in you. This world so desperately needs the message of Jesus. So desperately needs to know how amazing your love is. Oh, Lord, I pray we will rely on you so that your love will be seen in us. There are so many hurting and dying people, Lord. They're fighting. They're hurting each other. They're dying. Oh, Lord, show us how we can bring the message to them, to show them your love and your grace. Compel us, O oh Lord.